the deepest conversations, and I consider eavesdropping to be a fun activity. Um, but it's occasionally the case that you'll be eavesdropping in on a conversation that you wish you could not be a part of. It's either a confrontation, or it's terribly awkward, or tense. And you're thinking to yourself, like, how in the world would you possibly have this conversation in a place like this right now? Um, and you sort of want to get away. And in some ways, the conversation we're looking at today is sort of like that. Only, I think, if we really listen carefully, we'll actually hear ourselves in the conversation. Like, we're a part of this story as well. So our text is in Luke 7, and uh, it's up there eventually, some time, probably. Yes, I have much faith in my helpers. Um, we're going we're to read along there, or you're free, free to follow along in your own Bible. And uh, this is one of my favorite stories. And uh, here we go, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, took his place at the table. Behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and to wipe them with the hair of her head and uh, kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she's loved much. But he who's forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were with him at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. You can go in peace. All right. I'm going to pray. You can join me if you like. Uh, Father, we thank you for your, your word that's been recorded for us, and we pray, Spirit, that you would help us to see and understand your love more fully and to rest in it. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm a, I'm a big baseball fan, and uh, it's a good time of the year for me because I'm a Cardinals fan, and uh, September and October is just always good for us, it seems. So, uh, that being said, uh, a number of years ago, I remember the date, it was June 2nd, 2010, it was a, it was a bad night for any baseball fan. Uh, on that night, a uh, pitcher, a young pitcher for the Detroit Tigers named Armando Galarraga, was trying to do something that only 23 people have ever done in the 135 years of professional baseball. That is, complete a perfect game. If you're not a baseball fan, a perfect game is a game in which a pitcher gives up no hits, issues no walks, and no errors are made. It's a... It's, it's a the baseball perfection, in some ways, of dominance, a, a perfectly unflawed game. And 11 no-hitters have been lost in the very last at-bat of the ninth inning. Uh, and what typically happens during that last at-bat, if you surrender a hit or a walk, is uh, there's a collective groan of despair from the 40,000 people who want to see this perfect thing that almost never happens. And they miss out on this love fest that typically happens to turn a perfect game. 
But then they all unanimously stand up and applaud the effort. Still an amazing effort and an amazing game. But it seemed like that wasn't going to happen because on the 27th batter, who I believe was named Jason Donald, he sharply grounded to first. Armando Galarraga did his job, got over to the plate, over to first base, covered the bag, received the ball, and beat the runner. And as the celebration was about to begin, the umpire, Jim Joyce, one of the best umpires in baseball, misjudged and ruled the runner safe. And everyone was in, was in despair. Even the runner, who was trying to be safe, threw up his hands on his head in despair and dismay because he realized the wrong call had been made and that this moment of perfection had been ruined for Armando Galarraga. Um, you know, bad judgment has consequences. It does. It has consequences. And we would like to think it doesn't. Um, and it often robs us of joy and love. And uh, that was the case that night. But it's, it's often true of our own misjudgment. And these stories we're going to look at tonight, uh, one of them speaks of that. Uh, if you're a Christian, you know this reality in your own life. That uh, there are times in which you are peaceless, loveless, and apathetic. You just sort of look over yourself the last couple of months and like, I don't know what happened to me. I don't know what's going on, but I'm just not where I'm supposed to be. And no doubt, uh, if you're here skeptical, you've seen Christians or people that claim to be Christians like this that don't seem to love very much or care very much, and you say, what's their deal, and why would I ever want that? If this is what Christians are like, why would I want that? And uh, I think part of the reason is that we often as Christians, misjudge what Christianity is, and we live in the wrong story. And this is what's going to happen tonight. We're going to hear about two stories or two ways of life, one of which is based on a misjudgment. And it has its own logic and its own life, uh, and it's not a very good one. The second one is a story of hope, though, a way of hope. And if we would have a life of a lot of love, much love, if we want much love in our lives, let's say it more succinctly than that, uh, then we have to rest in God's love. That's the main point for the night. If we would have a life of much love, we have to rest in God's love. So these two ways I'm talking about are the way of performance and the way of grace. And if you stick around and argue up a lot, I'll talk about performance a lot. Because as a culture, pretty much, actually, as humans, we're all about performance. Our culture, uh, the performance that we're all after is is production. Uh, right after your name, we next want to know what you do. In college, we know what you do, so we ask, what do you study? Because we want to know what you'll do so we can judge how valuable you are. Uh, there's a reason we ask these questions. It's, it's really sad, but it is. That's what we, we do this. Well, in our story, uh, we'll get there and explain how that makes sense for them. Uh, there is a, a culture of performance as well. Uh, and we see it beginning to, to, to make sense and come out in this remarkable dinner setting. Uh, a, a Pharisee named Simon, who's a religious expert of sort and well-respected, invites Jesus over for dinner. There would have been many people there. And it would have been somewhat public. You could come and watch if you wanted. And uh, it's sort of a funny scene for us. You could look from above. There's probably a bunch of grown men laying on the ground, resting on their left arm, eating with their right arm, conversing. Pretty intimate. Um, but into this dinner party walks an unexpected guest, an intruder. And uh, whether it was 2,000 years ago in, in Palestine or today, what she did was really strange. Weeping, which is strange. We don't do that in public very much. Uh, uncontrollably, she begins to wash Jesus' feet 
with her tears and her hair. And if, 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 this was, if you were there, you would be undone, you would be uncomfortable, and they were uncomfortable for many reasons. And we would probably simply take, uh, maybe take pity on her, or assume there was something really deeply emotionally wrong with her, and escort her out, or maybe call the authorities, I don't know. Um, they didn't do that. Because their cultural assumption, their logic, was that of purity. And uh, what we see happening in this text with Simon as he's thinking is he looks at this woman and knows her past and immediately comes to all kinds of conclusions. So, by way of helping you understand what it's like to live with a logic of performance or purity, uh, a number of years ago I worked in a house as a painter. Well, I worked as a painter in many houses. Um, but one particular house, which was phenomenal and different, it was an Orthodox Jewish house. And uh, the first day they oriented us to some of their expectations for us, um, the wife of the house could never be seen without her wig, which is great. I don't know how, how I could control that. That was really up to her. Uh, we had to be out of the house by 4.30 on Friday so they could observe Sabbath. We had to make sure we didn't get any of their sinks or utensils mixed up because they were observing kosher laws. And philosophically, I was fine uh, out of respect trying to observe all those laws. Practically, it was much harder. And on the very, very first day, I, being an outsider, a Gentile, someone likely to corrupt their home, uh, did something really stupid with a really sharp blade and sliced my finger. I mean, it was bleeding profusely. This is like five minutes before starting my job there. I just cannot stop the bleeding. And then my frustration and anger, because it was something really stupid, I actually tried to push the blade in from the top, like into the blade. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> in my frustration and anger and my stupidity, I threw the blade down and sliced this thumb. I have a nice little two-inch scar there. Um, so five minutes into the job, here I am an outsider, bleeding all over their house. Purity concern, right? Right? Uh, and to help you maybe understand, like, on your level, how Simon would have been concerned about purity and thinking, if Jesus knew what kind of woman she is, he wouldn't even let her touch him. Uh, we're like this with shame. Like, we, we don't understand how purity or impurity can be spread, but shame can. So here's an example. I just made this up. Um, imagine, ladies, you're with your friends. You're studying together. You're either in the library or you're at market. You're chatting. It's great. And all of a sudden, you see a guy approaching you. Probably a freshman. You're not sure. Uh... He's got headphones on around his ears, the big ones, and a ratty t-shirt, and it's clear he hasn't shaved or showered in days. He's got a really bad complexion. You don't know who this guy is. But he walks up to you, puts his arm around you, kisses you on the cheek, and says, I'm looking forward to this weekend, and then walks away. You have no idea who this guy is, but immediately you feel ashamed, probably, and concerned about what every one of your friends thinks about you, Right? Right? I think I'm right. Um, yeah, you're shaking your head. Yeah. And you're like, I, I don't know that guy! <laughs> yeah. uh, and you've sort of been infected by his shame that he put on you. And that's what Simon sees here. He looks at this woman. He knows her past. She's been a sinner. It's not disputed. She is a sinner. She's notorious. And uh, in his mind, purity and corruption is transferable. And he thinks, as he says in the text here, uh, if Jesus were a real prophet, a real man of God, he'd know what kind of person she is and would have nothing to do with her. But he's letting her know what he's doing. She's doing. So he must not be a prophet or man of God. 
And uh, that's how Simon's logic runs. Now, what's interesting here is Jesus begins, he's reading Simon's mind, that's what goes on. Jesus begins to address it. And, uh, and he basically is going out to show Simon how his logic of performance affects his life. And what it does is it produces a life that has little love. So Jesus, reading Simon's mind, says, uh, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And that was sort of a, uh, a catchphrase culturally for uh, watch out. He's asking permission. And Simon accepts. He knows a, a rebuke is coming. And he says, say it, teacher. And uh, Jesus, because he has conversations unlike the rest of us, immediately tells a story. <laughs> we'll get to that. And then asks a couple questions. But what Jesus is out to do here is to show Simon himself by comparing him to a hooker. I mean, that's what she seems to be. She's most likely a prostitute. And Jesus is out to show Simon what's really in his heart in life by comparing him to her. And what we see in Simon's life is that he's marked by judgment. Uh, Jesus asks in verse 44, do you see this woman? Seems like a silly question. Um, actually, yes, everybody sees her. It's very awkward. It's terrible. And she disgusts me. Could you please remove her from my presence? And that's what's in Simon's heart. She's a terrible person. And you're a terrible person for allowing her to act this way, Jesus. That's what's in his heart. But what Jesus is not, he's not asking a simple uh, rhetorical question. I think he's really asking Simon, do you see her? Because Simon, you're based on performance and purity. You don't see people. You see performance. And what you see here is failure. You don't see her. You don't see her as a human. You don't see her as a person. You're treating her like a failure. You're not seeing her. And what we learn about Simon as we go on is not only does he not see her right, he doesn't see himself right, he doesn't see Jesus right either. And he's also marked by fear. This is not as clear in the text, but I think it just sort of has to be implicitly true. If you live by performance, you have to do it right, believe right, and what other people do can affect that, then he has to live in fear because she can ruin his life. People like her can ruin his life. Actually, the same is true for you in lots of ways. Like, socially. Like, that dude who kissed you on the cheek and said, I can't wait this weekend, he can make you a little miserable. People can ruin your life. They can ruin your performance. And Simon has to live carefully in fear instead of faith because other people can, can jeopardize his performance. And lastly, this is where Jesus drops the hammer. And this is where he's driving, verses 44 to 46. He doesn't have any love. He's loveless. And here Jesus begins to ask a couple questions and, uh, and to say, Simon, uh, see this woman, when I, when I came in your house, you didn't wash my feet. She washed your feet with tears. You didn't anoint my head. You didn't give me a kiss. You didn't do... These are all typical customs that any Palestinian would have extended to any guest. Simon calls Jesus teacher. He gives lip service saying, you're a person of great respect. He says it, but he doesn't act it. In other words, his duty is the bare minimum and is completely lacking in any care and love. He doesn't love well. He's just doing the rote duty without any love whatsoever, whereas she loves well. So why does Simon's logic of performance lead to a complete lack of love? What's missing? And Jesus answers that question in verse 47. This is probably the most important verse 
in the text, verse 47, I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. She loved much. Simon, this is you, Simon. He who's forgiven little loves little. Simon, if you think you perform well, if you think you do well, if you think you don't have much need for forgiveness, you're not going to love people. You're not going to love God. You're going to feel like He's not done anything for you, so you're not going to be full of gratitude or joy or love. You're going to be ambivalent and apathetic. And Simon, that's who you are. You don't understand God's love for you, so you don't love. That's how the logic of his performance leads to a lack of love. And the reality is, is lots of people that think they're Christians do the same thing. They think this is the only story. And I need to let you in on a little secret. Uh, you're in a place that expects you to perform. That culture expected them to perform morally and purity. This culture expects you to perform and to produce. You're here to produce. You're here to get good grades. You're here to do service. You're here to explore opportunities. You're here to produce socially. And uh, there will be people that are disappointed in you if you don't do those things. Um, and it's easy for you, perhaps, to think that's the way God looks at you and what God expects of you. But that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. If that's what you think Christianity is, you're thinking like Simon. And Christianity is actually much different. And we see that when we look at the way of grace. This point's going to go much quicker. Grace has its own logic as well. It's the logic of forgiveness. And in verses 41 and 42, Jesus tells a story. And it's a really complicated, detailed story. That was ironic. That was sarcastic. I didn't mean that. 41 and 42, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 5,000 denarii, the other 50. That's like 18 months and two months. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both, which loved him more. It's a pretty simple story. Three people, two debtors, one money lender. And for some reason not given to us, he just canceled their debts. And in verse 47, Jesus, again, makes clear what this is about. He's saying, this is about forgiveness. That story, Simon, is about you and God, and this woman and God. And God is a great money lender. He's a banker who does not care about money. It's crazy. That's what the story means. God is a money lender who doesn't care about money. He is gracious and forgiving. So the logic runs like this. Everyone is a debtor. By nature, we all owe God love and loyalty. Uh, but we all actually do whatever we want. We want God to bless our lives so that we can do what we want. And we sort of want to serve Him, but just enough so that we know He's okay with us. But we really want to do what we want. And we generally think we're okay, but then we, if we could honestly check the checkbooks, we'd see we're in great deficit. We're actually bankrupt, and we have no hope of paying it off. And God, for some reason, unbeknownst to us, this text doesn't tell us, other texts do, it's because he loves us, he forgives his people, wipes away all the debt, doesn't just sweep them into the carpet, he has to assume the debt, the cost, and pay it himself. That's what Jesus does at the cross. And uh, the third point of the logic here is, if you're a great debtor and you owe a lot, like this woman, and he forgives you everything, you'll have a great deal of love for the person that forgave you. That's uh, the logic of this text. And something that's really important here, I think for all of us to recognize, it's scary, it scares me, is that you can get this right and wrong at the same time. Jesus tells this story and says, Simon, what's going to love him 
Who's going to love the money lender more? And he gives the right answer. And he's got the right answer. He understands the principle abstractly. But personally, in his life, he doesn't get it. I mean, you can see that, right? He gets the right answer, but doesn't see how it applies to him. And it's true of us as well. You can know it and still not embrace it in a way that does you any good. Because we have a way of minimizing our debt and need. I mean, you might actually be clueless. You might think you're awesome and the best person ever. And that's possible, but not likely. Um, more likely, and this is the way most of us function every day, you're convinced that you have to perform for God, that you have to be good enough. And so you try really hard to be good enough. And that means sometimes when you do things that are bad, you sort of forgive them or excuse them or blame them on other people or blame them on your parents or blame them on other stuff. Slide them under the rug. You minimize how bad it is, and you emphasize all your good things and blow them up so you can feel pretty good about yourself. That's what we often do. And we won't honestly look at our debt and admit what we really need. But uh, I would like you to try something else on. If you're wondering, like, is this me? Am I like Simon or am I like this woman? Well, let's just look at this woman. Because her logic, the logic of grace or forgiveness, produces a life of a lot of love. Much love. So, pretty quickly, Simon's a person who's judgmental. He looks down on other people. He gets her wrong. He gets Jesus wrong. He doesn't see his own sin. This woman, she doesn't think about Simon or his friends. She knows she's a mess. I mean, that's the, that's the only logical thing that would drive a woman like her into a crowded house full of religious figures. She sees her mess, and she knows Jesus can fix it. And she comes to him. She judges herself and comes to him, knowing that Jesus will not judge her, but forgive her. And he says that. Uh, who judges you? I forgive you. And uh, fear. Uh, there are some reasons for a woman like her to be afraid. She's in a town. Everyone knows her. She's walking in publicly in a place where she can uh, incur great shame. She's not afraid. She comes in with great faith that Jesus is going to treat her well and forgive her. And he does. And lastly, love. Unlike Simon, who loves little, she loves much. She doesn't have the resources to love like Simon does. But she uses whatever she has to love him extravagantly. Uh, Simon's too self-absorbed with his performance, and he's too afraid to love well. He doesn't care. She cares a lot. She loves a lot. And it's sometimes a little embarrassing, but it's beautiful what she does. So what we have here, summary, two different ways, two different stories. And I think it's really important that you understand, that you see the differences and you understand them. There's the way of performance. And, and if there's a, an equation for the way of performance, it's something like this. If I perform well enough, if I'm good enough, if I love people enough, God will accept me and love me. That's the way of performance. And I'm telling you, that is not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Jesus came to do. And then there's the way of grace. That for some reason, unbeknownst to us in this text, but revealed elsewhere, that he loves his people, that God forgives his people. And assumes the cost himself. And that's what produces love in our lives, that we want to live for him. That's the way of grace. That's what Christianity is about. Now, again, you can understand that. I think Simon sort of understands it now. But fail to rest in it. And I'm going to call you to rest in it. Whether you're confused about what Christianity is, or you think you've been a Christian for your whole life, it's hard to rest in this. 
Because we have this internal impulse telling us to produce and to perform and to get it right and to have it right, and that's what makes us right. That's not Christianity. And frankly, resting in his love is wonderful and beautiful, but it's hard. There's one thing that makes it really hard. You have to be dead right honest. You just have to be completely honest with God about what's true in your life and in your heart. You have to come to him as you are, and, and right now it might be, I'm deeply worried you won't care about me. Or, uh, right now, I've known you for my whole life, but I don't love you very much right now. You actually have to be dead right honest with him about what's in your life, and then come to him. Because that's what it means to really see your debt, and to believe that he can address it. And that's not just the way that you become a Christian, that's the way you grow as a Christian. That's what produces the love in your life that this woman has. As you rest in his love, by faith, you become loving. You're marked by his love. Uh, well, the uh, the baseball game. Came back to the baseball game. The uh, it, it turns out there are things more beautiful than a perfect game. Um, Jim Joyce, who's this stocky little guy, looks like a fire hydrant with a beard. Um, he's a really intense dude. And when he went back to the dugout after the game, he reviewed the play, and he. Uh, he realized he made a terrible mistake. And most umpires uh, do not admit mistakes at all. And they want to talk to the media about blown calls. He immediately went to the media, and, and I actually have his quote here. He, he cusses a lot. So um, Anyway, he simply said, it's the biggest call of my career, and I kicked the crap out of it. That's not what he said. And uh, I just cost that kid a perfect game. He was deeply emotional about it, distraught. He did something I've never heard of. He actually asked to meet with the player right after the game. And uh, Galarraga came and visited the umpire's room, and uh, Jim Joyce, his middle-aged man, went and gave him a hug and said, I'm sorry. It was beautiful. It was, it was wonderful. But no one saw that. Uh, what people did see was the next day, and this was pretty awesome. So when you umpire a game, you actually umpire the whole series, and you play three or four games, and the umpires rotate. So uh, as the umpires came out the next day with the Tigers, Indians, uh, the entire crowd booed Jim Joyce because he screwed it up the previous night. And uh, that night he was calling the game from home plate. He was calling balls and strikes. And it's customary before the game that the, the managers of each team come to the umpire and turn in their lineup cards. This is who plays and who's playing where. But that night the Tigers sent out Armando Galarraga to meet Jim Joyce at the plate. And when Joyce recognized what was happening, he broke down. He started crying. He's publicly wiping away tears. He's this little guy, and he's very embarrassed. But uh, they shook hands and hugged. And uh, one sports writer wrote, the two exchanged handshakes and hugs in one of the most inspiring, emotional, and moving displays of sportsmanship any sports I've ever seen. So that's not a pastor saying those words. That's a sports writer saying, that's about the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And he is right. Because there's, there's almost nothing, I can't think of anything more beautiful than forgiveness and grace and love. And what I'm giving you tonight are two ways. You have two ways. You can perform, but that doesn't produce love. Or you can embrace the way of grace, which is beautiful. And you can rest in his love and be transformed by it and love God and others well. All right, let's pray together. Good Father, thank you for these students that uh, listen intently and patiently and 